0: Otherwise, good morning again. My name is Jordan. I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Seoul and uh, Pastor Jerry and Sharon are away this weekend. Sharon is speaking at a uh, ladies conference in BC and so um, you get to be stuck with me this morning. And um, we're not really in a series right now, we're kind of uh, just kind of speaking some of the words that we've been kind of going through in our own hearts and in our own times of personal study. And so this morning I want to talk about a message that I've titled, A Kingdom Ethic. So as of late, I've really been looking at um, the kingdom of heaven and the ethics surrounding it, the way kingdom people live, things that people who are part of this kingdom, the way they treat people, the way they view things, the way they act around others. Um, I want to talk about a kingdom ethic this morning, and there are many of them um, that should really mark the way Christians live. Um, But let me begin today. We're going to be talking a little bit about what it means to judge, where judgment is wrong, and what the antidote to that very well may be. And so a perfect place to start this morning for us is by talking a couple minutes about Rob Ford. And so, Rob Ford, and I'm not kidding, I'm being honest. Rob Ford was a controversial figure. He was the mayor of Toronto. Um, He he was running for other things. And um, during his time as mayor, in a lot of ways, the atmosphere was really, as newspapers and reporters would describe it, was really a circus kind of attitude in the media. Um, It seemed that every week we had something new to add to his story. Um, I was a subscriber to Maclean's magazine. And I can't tell you how many times during that period he was either on the cover or was one of the main stories. And um, I remember sitting at Starbucks one day, and a friend came up to me and said, oh, you're catching up on Rob, eh? And I'm like, well, I guess. You know, I never really thought about it that way. But he was in the media a lot. And um, during his time, it was marked by a lot of controversial things, people that he hung out with, decisions that he made, things that he said. And um, it seemed like, you know, he was on late-night talk shows across America. I believe it was Jimmy Kimmel who had him on his show. And um, he really... had had a celebrity of sorts, you know, and and not necessarily in the way that a lot of people would want to have that. But then we heard the sad and heartbreaking news of his illness. And shortly following that, the heartbreaking and sad news of his death. And it was in the days following that we seen media coverage of of his funeral service and words from his family, words from his friends. And it became apparent that Rob Ford wasn't just someone that we disagreed with. That Rob Ford wasn't just someone that we kind of laughed at. Rob Ford wasn't just someone who should have been written off and who we should have criticized and rolled our eyes at. But we recognized that he was also human in that moment. Just like we are also human. In the same way that he he was prone to mistakes, so are we. And we recognized, I think, in that moment when things settled down and when things got deeply personal, we recognized that we shared some common ground with this fellow. Something that as humans we all bring to the table, something that as humans we all struggle with, we all fight with. And in the coverage following his passing, we've seen words coming in, we've seen tributes coming in from family and from friends and from those that were close to him. And we began to see that, you know, that's, that, that there was people out there, someone out there knew him as husband. There were some out there who knew him as dad. There were many out there who knew him as friend and colleague and relative. And we recognize that this guy who was so fun to kind of poke fun at, this guy who was so fun to kind of roll your eyes at, you kind of recognize in that moment that he was also very human, who had struggles much like me, much like you. And so... I got to be very careful in my heart because often when we when we see these kind of people on the on the TV or on the news or on talk shows and we see them making bad decisions and at times very poor decisions in our minds, there's this human tendency within me that wants to point the finger and be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah! Look at them! How can they do that? Like, just roll my eyes! Like, oh, here we go again." There's this human tendency that almost wants to just point the finger and say, look at what they're doing, look how bad they're acting. And yet, at the end of the day, they are people too, and they have people around them who love them and need them. And as people, we can make the same bad decisions, we can make the same kind of mistakes, and we need the same kind of grace in our lives that they or anyone else needs. We need that grace too. We need that, that, that forgiveness to fail. In the Huffington Post, um, immediately following his, his death, there was an article written by Ian Carey. And he was talking about how we kind of failed Rob Ford. And he says this he says, We didn't have sympathy. We didn't have concern because we had otherized him. To borrow a phrase from our friendly millennial members of society, we otherized him because we decided he was a bad person. And bad people aren't worthy of our sympathy or concern. If it had been your friend or family member demonstrating the same behavior, your first reaction would be to get them help. But our first reaction towards Ford was to want him to lose his job, blackball him from society, and then we laughed some more. And I remember reading this guy's article. I remember he wrote this article about how we maybe, you know, should have reacted towards him. And this guy is not coming from a Christian perspective at all. And I couldn't help but think, yeah, yeah, good point. Makes sense. And so maybe in some ways, Rob Ford made bad choices and did things that maybe we wouldn't do. You know, I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is that we as people who seek to follow Christ, who want to live kingdom-minded, we don't receive that right to condemn others. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But we recognize that in the same way others have issues or in the same way others do bad things, we also have our own set of sins and struggles that we very much deal with too. We've all fallen short. You know, we're talking about the Seoul Golf Tournament, June 26th, i up at the back, Jake has a putting grain out there, I'm going to challenge him to a contest after the gathering, but uh, he doesn't know that yet. But um, Tiger here, you know, went through a similar kind of thing, where some of his sins were outlined across the media years ago, and I remember what surprised me most about that, and I wasn't really a fan of him, I'm more of a Phil Mickelson guy myself, right? But I remember what surprised me most about this was how so many golfers were just taking shots at him, were just kind of unleashing their mind in the media, and it became almost just rain on him, rain on him. Did he make bad decisions? Absolutely. And he admitted to it, but it's just the the outlash and the public cry in our society that sometimes comes with wanting to point out the bad things that people do. And so let me ask some questions about our society this morning. These are just questions, not necessarily accusations, but questions. Here's my first one. Do we like having someone to look down on? Do we ever feel redeemed or better about ourselves at the expense of someone else's bad choices or their sins, if you will, being made known publicly? And what if everything that you did, everything that you thought, everything that you said, every bad choice that you made was going to be broadcasted over television, in the news, on the net, tweeted about Instagram? What if everybody was to, you know, talk about the things that you did? How would you feel about that? Would we be as spot free as we sometimes are tempted to think we are now? if everybody got to see all the things that you do and see all the decisions that you make in private, how would you feel? You see, I wonder if as a society, sometimes we love it when people fall or because when they do that, they take the attention away because of some of the bad things that they've done. I wonder if we love it because if everyone's focused and looking at them, then maybe they won't see all the ways in which we make mistakes or in which we possibly fall short. If we can just put the spotlight upon those quote-unquote bad people, in parenthesis, those people who got caught making bad decisions, then maybe people will be focused on that and maybe they'll glance over mine. It's just a thought. In the Gospel of John, and in chapter 8, we're not going to go to the scripture, but the picture on the screen you can see of the guy with the rock in his hands, the story of the men who were caught with stones in their hands. Um, a lot of us know it as the story of the adulterous woman, but... Really, it's a story of Jesus' mercy and some men who got caught with stones. And they bring this lady before Jesus, caught her in the act of adultery. No sign of where the gentleman is. But they bring her out in front of Jesus and they ask him a question. What do we do with this woman? The law says to stone her. What do you say? And they didn't necessarily care so much about what happened to the woman, but they cared about trapping Jesus and getting him to make a bad decision. Because if he he shows mercy, he's not following the law, and if he asks them to stone, then it says something contrary to maybe what he said before, and it was really just a trap to use them for their own gain. And so Jesus tells them, "Well, if any of you are without sin, if any of you are perfect, go ahead, huck the stone, have at it." Essentially, what he says, and then he starts writing on the ground, and no one could really figure out what he writes. No one really knows what he wrote. But one by one, these men from oldest to youngest, the scripture says, start to drop their stones. And they walk away. And then Jesus says to the woman, does anyone condemn you? She says, no. He says, neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's almost as though Jesus says to them, go ahead. If you're without sin, if you're without fault, if you're without wrongdoing or missing the mark, go ahead and throw a stone if that's you. And none of them were qualified to do so. In fact, the only one who was qualified to do so was the one who ran furthest from it, and that was Jesus himself. And so let's take this up in Matthew chapter 7. I've been doing some studying on the Sermon on the Mount lately, and uh, this portion has really been highlighted to me. Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there was a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And we read a portion of Scripture like this, and we think sometimes, how many times have we ever heard people quote verse 1, right? You know, don't judge me, or you'll be judged. Don't judge, right? And sometimes we bring that up, I think, when we want to justify ourselves, right? <laughs> when, when, when we know we're caught in something, and we just want to kind of get, you know, don't judge, or you'll be judged, right? And we just kind of throw it out there. But this word judge, we see often throughout Scripture. And I'll just get the, the part... Proposenter, just to hold up for a second, but this word judge is also the Greek word known as krino, K-R-I-N-O. So if I could take you on a quick little Greek lesson here, I'll promise to try to make it interesting, but this word judge comes up lots throughout the New Testament, and it's often used in different ways, in different contexts, and that's the thing about the Greek language, is they didn't have so many words and so many slangs that we do, but their language was a little bit more limited, And so therefore, certain words can be interpreted in different situations in different ways. And so what was Jesus saying when he was talking about judging? It was the Greek word krino. And so the first instance that we'll look at that we see this word is found in Titus chapter 3 and verse 12. And it says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Probably didn't say it right. Because I have decided to winter there. Now, some of you are probably thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the reason why I'm reading that is because that word decided is the Greek word krino, which is the word that Jesus uses for judge in Matthew chapter 7. And in this particular instance, one of the uses of that word is seen. And one of the uses of that word krino is just this, it's to decide. To distinguish, to discern, to resolve, to make a decision about something. And so Paul writes, I've decided to winter there. I've crinoed. I've made a judgment. I've made a decision. Are you with me? Is Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 7, do not make any decisions? Is that what he's saying? No. It's not the use of the word that he's going with here. Because if that's what Jesus was saying, you'd have to contradict yourself because, you know, to not make a decision, you'd have to make a decision not to make a decision, right? So it really couldn't work. When he was saying, don't judge, he wasn't saying, don't make any decisions. Is Jesus saying whatever you do, make no decisions? Absolutely not. He's not saying not to make decisions. He's not instructing us not to arrive at conclusions. These are things that we all do and that we need to do. We can hold up on that picture for a second. And how many of you know that sometimes we see things different and sometimes we arrive at different conclusions than the people around us? Anyone experience that in life? How many of you get frustrated when people come to different decisions than you do or come to different conclusions? How many of you, you know, just have to stop a conversation sometimes because it just drives you nuts when someone doesn't see things the same way you do? You know, We all arrive at different conclusions, we all make different decisions on certain things, and just because we make personal decisions or have personal beliefs that are different than others does not imply that we are judging them. Can I just say that? Does not imply that we're judging them. Now, you can judge them by writing them off or by condemning them if you choose to, which I hope that you won't do. That can be your own personal choice. You can judge them if you want, but, just, but, but, but by making a decision, just because we may have different responses or different conclusions to different issues does not mean that we are judging each other. And I think our society loses that sometimes, and we, we seem to think that if we have differences of opinion or that we disagree on things, that we're judging one another. We are allowed to make our own decisions. We're allowed to draw our own conclusions, have our own set of personal convictions, if you will. And we can do this without judging others personally. We should do it without judging others personally. You see, I love music. And anyone who's known me for a little bit will know that that's true of me. If you come into my office, you'll quickly gather that, right? But I love music. And one of my favorite bands, uh, Radiohead, they're on the screen, just dropped a new album. And uh, they've been one of my favorite bands for many years. And a close high school friend of mine that I talk with music often, we we started on the phone last week talking about this album. And it was so funny because we completely disagreed on how we thought this album came across. Um, I really like it and he really dislikes it. And in our discussions, we kind of went back and forth. And in a lot of ways, we were strong in our opinions. And At some points, I think we were kind of pushing each other a little bit, but at the end of the day day, it was just the fact that we disagreed on our conclusions, and it was just that. And that alone, we're still very good friends. We didn't have to blow up a relationship, we didn't have to blow up a friendship because of a disagreement, and it doesn't, and it shouldn't change how we see one another. And that's just a music discussion, that's just a discussion about one of these bands that we both liked for a long time. But what about when it comes to hot button issues, if I can call it that? What about when it comes to politics? What about when it comes to certain things that, you know, are, are, are really out there, like really um, heated topics like politics or marriage or gender debates? Then what? Can we still hold a belief and can we still make a decision, a judgment, Crino, that can happen without condemning or writing people completely off? Can we still do that? I believe we can. I believe we should. See, Jesus isn't instructing us not to make decisions here. Jesus isn't saying don't distinguish, don't discern when he says don't judge. Two different things. You see, in one use of this word krino is to make a decision. It's to distinguish. It's to discern. And we can and should judge in this way in our own lives. We can and should develop our own set of convictions and beliefs. That is appropriate. But maybe there are certain things that perhaps you need to stay away from. Maybe there's certain people who, you know, it just brings a sort of toxicness into your life and into your relationship. And you you just need to maybe step back from that a little bit. You maybe need to, you know, not spend as much time with them. It doesn't mean that you judge them, it doesn't mean that you write them off, doesn't mean that you condemn them, condemn them, but perhaps you need to protect yourself and your family in certain situations. The first use of the word crino does not imply judgment and condemnation, it implies making a decision, and we should make decisions. That'll lead to healthiness and wholeness in our lives. Second use of the word, crino, is found in John 18, 31. The words Pilate said, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone they objected. Take him yourself and crino him by your own law. Same word, different meaning, different context. And so in this portion of scripture, we see that the second use refers to the court of law. And so this word judge is used within the court of law. In this case of Crino, it's judgment that may be inflicted by a judge or by a jury or by a set of laws that have been established. This is the use of Crino in this particular verse. Is Jesus saying to do away with the court system. He's not saying that. It's not what's happening here. In fact, this is Pilate speaking here. And he's giving it instruction on how to deal with Jesus through the courts of law that are in place in the nation. We know it was unjust because we know the whole side of the story. We know the ending. But Jesus isn't suggesting that we do away with the court system when he tells us not to judge one another. That's not what he's saying in Matthew chapter 7. You know, Jesus isn't, you know, going on a rant about the court systems. You know, Jesus still has love for judge duty, okay? Um, I'm not sure he would watch the show, but I know he loves her, Okay. And this word judge is the same Greek verb krino, but alas, it carries many meanings, and understanding context is huge when determining its usage in a discussion. And so let's look at the third way it's used, and this will be the last way we look at This is where we'll land for the talk, to carry on. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we read these words, Therefore judge nothing. Before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Therefore, creenow nothing before the appointed time. Because he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and he will expose the motives of people's hearts. This third use of this word krino, this is close, this is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, do not krino, do not judge, lest you be judged. This is the use of the word and this third use of krino is A, something that God does. Not us. This is something that God does. And B, it involves exposing the darkest darkness and motives of people's hearts, which is not something that I really want to do. Not something that I, not a responsibility I necessarily want to sign up for. Another example of this third usage of crino is in John seven, where we see stop judging, stop crino by mere appearances, but instead crino correctly. And this one's confusing because he, that word judge is used is used twice there, but in different meanings, different ways. You see, Jesus is condemning the third use of that word crino. Stop judging. Stop stop, uh, doing something that God does by mere appearances, but instead make a decision correctly. He encourages the use of the first that we talked about this morning. Make decisions, yes, but judgments in the sense of condemnation we are unfit for. Stop that third use of the word kareno, but instead use that first use. That's what Jesus is kind of saying there. And so in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus isn't saying to us, don't make any decisions. He isn't saying to get rid of the court systems. But Jesus is speaking of a way in which we evaluate, critique, and draw conclusions about other people. That's what he's talking about. A couple of ways we could, we could define this is to judge then is to raise yourself up by lowering another. One way of judging is to raise yourself up at the expense of lowering someone else, to make a conclusion, an evaluation, a critique of them, by lowering them, by making decisions about the very motives of their heart in such a way, by lowering them and ever so quietly raising yourself up. To judge, then, is to confuse action with essence and identity. I'll say that again. To judge, then, is to confuse action with essence or identity. I've heard it said that we often judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our own intentions. Anyone heard that before? I think there's truth there. You know, that whole idea, but you know, this is really what I meant. You know, you should have gotten that, or you know, but you clearly misunderstood me. I wasn't meaning to hurt you. Or, you know, I I mean, well, you know, I made a little mistake here, and you know, I was actually trying to do this. And it's easier to judge others by what they've done, but when it comes to ourselves, it's, we want to be judged by our intentions, by what we actually met and set out to do. And we wait with the hope of a little grace when we make mistakes, and that's fair. But we must also be willing to dispense that same grace with other people when they make mistakes. Judging, then, is looking at the actions of people and then labeling them as those very things that they've done. Declaring that to be their essence, that to be their identity, that those things they did, well, that actually makes up who they really are. How many want to sign up for that kind of treatment in your life? This is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 7 when he's telling us not to judge. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he shows that exposing the motives of their heart, that's God's job. That's his job. When we judge somebody in this negative crino way, this third use of the word that we looked at this morning, what we are essentially doing is confusing action with essence. Because of someone's action, we we then make declarative statements about their essence, their identity, and their worth as a whole person. We don't just say that that thing that they did was pretty messed up. We don't just say that that thing that they did, well, that was a very poor choice. We basically say that they are their mistake. They are what they've done. And that's what Jesus is instructing us. It's that kind of mindset that he's instructing us away from. Maybe Jesus was saying judging is when you assume divine responsibility for evaluating the worth and value of another person. Essentially, to judge is to do God's job. It's his job. It's his job to expose the motives of a person's heart. It's his job to expose the darkness of someone's heart. It's where we get the phrase, only God can judge me from. You see, to judge another to judge another is to take on a role that's not ours. To judge another is to take on a role that we aren't qualified to do, that we aren't fit for service of, that we are imperfect human beings, much like the people we may want to put the spotlight on showing them to be imperfect, flawed human beings. And so to judge another person is to do something that we're not qualified to do. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. It's heavy. It's a heavy truth. And the truth is, and I've said this before, but God doesn't need a general manager. He doesn't need us to be his GM. He doesn't, you know, need us to be a spiritual cop, if you will, for him, right, necessarily. He doesn't need us to go around making sure that everyone's staying in line, everything, everyone's doing everything that we think they should be doing. But God wants us to be his. And he wants us to be about his work. And so we just talked about the first point that I want to highlight this morning, and that's just this, don't assume divine responsibility. It's a role that we're unfit for. In James chapter 4, he warns his readers. If we could put the scripture on the screen. James chapter 4? Oh, it's not there, I guess. In James chapter 4, he warns his readers that when they begin to judge and condemn others, they are assuming the posture of God and not the posture of humans. It's this idea that when you begin to judge someone else, you're sitting in judgment because you yourself do the same things. You assume a posture that is not yours when you should be assuming the posture of a human. Um, author Scott McKnight um, says this concerning all this. He says, we must learn to distinguish moral discernment from personal condemnation. The ethic from beyond, in other words, the kingdom, shapes a society for reconciliation instead of damnation. Kingdom people are called to love, not to act the part of God. And so Jesus follows all of this with a section, a discussion on planks and specks. And the original audience would have found this kind of humorous because the image he gives is of somebody with a plank in their eye who's very concerned about the speck in their brother or sister's eyes. And so it's almost as though you were walking up to somebody, okay? and you've seen that there was something in their eye, a little speck, and you're walking up to them like this, kind of, right? And it's like, hey, man, there's something in your eye. You know, you might want to deal with that, right? You know? You know what, Jordan? There's something I've seen, you know, I just think you really need to deal with. There's a little speck in your eye, right? And all along, you have a plank in yours. And to not deal with this first, and to try to go around... And deal with everyone's specs is missing the point of how kingdom people are supposed to live. Judging is attempting to control somebody through correcting, through criticizing, through shaming or through speaking against. Judging underneath it all, in a lot of ways, is really about control. Think about that. It's really about wanting to control people. I critique you because I'm trying to get you to be something that better serves my purposes or that aligns with what I think. Judging right below the surface has control. You know, think about the parent or the teachers or whoever. Think about somebody shaming a child, okay? And the child did something wrong, and the child is just getting a verbal lashing, right? And just a beat down and being told, like, do you even think? Do you have a brain? Da, 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 da. Let's just assume there was a very big verbal lashing going on there. And how many of you know a child who takes something like that who thinks, well, thank you for that. Now I'm ready to change, Right? I'm finally ready to act better and do things that you want me to do. Thanks for that, right? I don't know too many kids like that. Because shame doesn't properly motivate. Shame doesn't really work, right? And yet it gets used all the time. And in a lot of ways, judging, when we judge other people, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make them more like ourselves. And so what can we do to counteract this? Well, the second point this morning I want us to look at is just to entrust yourself to God. And trust yourself to God. The section that we're reading out of this morning is found in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so the words we read in Matthew chapter 7, they should be taken in context with all the words that you've read in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 6. Because it all goes together. It's a sermon that Jesus is speaking. And in Matthew chapter 6, we read about the Lord's Prayer. I won't read through it, but you can see it on the screens. And we read about the Lord's Prayer and it's this idea of holy is your name. It's, we, we come to God acknowledging his greatness, acknowledging his goodness. The first three or four lines of that prayer are all about him and his kingdom come and his, his will be done. And, you know, acknowledging our need for him. But the next part of that prayer is all about acknowledging our need to entrust ourselves to him. When we pray, forgive us our sins, we are laying our past before God. When we pray, give us today our daily bread, we are laying our present before God. And when we pray, deliver us from evil, we are laying our future before him. And it is this idea of laying your past and your present and your future before him. At the core of this prayer, Jesus is inviting us to entrust ourselves to God and trust ourselves to him. He's inviting us to walk down a path, a way of living in the world that very few people take and it's to live with this humble trust that all will be okay and that we can trust God, that we can trust him, we can put our hope in him, we can put our faith in him because he is faithful and he will take care of things. And so we need to entrust ourselves to God because he does care for us. We need to trust that he can deal with us in the way that only he can. We need to go with him at confidence, knowing that we could lay our past before him. We could lay our present. We could lay our future. We can trust him. But now on to judging and how I relate to others. And that leads us to the third point this morning. We need to also, just as much as we entrust ourselves to God, we need to entrust others to God. You see, the the Lord's prayer is to entrust all of life to God. It's to entrust yourself to God. And perhaps just as important, we need to entrust others to him as well. Because if you don't entrust others to God, then you are going to be plagued by a desire to want to control them. And to want to make decisions for them. And to want to get them to be a way you want them to be. You see, Jesus is, is teaching us to entrust ourselves to God. And one of the things that can happen is that We do that, but we don't entrust others to him as well. And so we live with this profound stress and tension on how to get them to do what we want, how to get them to play by the rules that maybe we've set up, to get them to do what they're supposed to be doing according to our plans, and it becomes miserable, and it brings frustration, and it brings tension. It brings stress. And here's just a thought in all of this. This is just a thought I'll just throw out in the middle of this. How much of our judgment is based on rules that maybe men have established that maybe men have made up, and perhaps God has really expressed very little opinion on them at all when we do these things. And so sometimes when people don't follow suit to our plans or to our rules or to the things that we want them to do, we can then treat them negatively. We can judge them. We can condemn them. We can disapprove. We can shame the very things Jesus is warning us against doing. And we have to remember that this isn't about us and them. This is about us entrusting them. In the same way we entrust ourselves to God, we need to make sure that we're entrusting other people to him as well. Because how many of you know he can deal with them just as he could deal with you? Right? He can love them just as he loves you. He can bring them to the place they need to be just like he's leading you. Number four, we need each other. This is the part of that verse that has to resolve. You see, entrusting ourselves and others to God is the only way that we're ever going to be able to help anyone. It's the only way we're ever ever going to be able to help someone else. In verse 5, Jesus says, You hypocrite, which that Greek word literally essentially means you actor on a stage. Look it up. That's literally what he, when he says hypocrite there, literally that can essentially be translated, you actor on a stage. Remove your plank. That big piece of wood. So then maybe, maybe you'll be able to see and help other people. And interestingly enough, you actually can become the type of person who will help people. You can become that type of person. But it will begin when you do the very hard work of removing the plank from your own eye. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. You see, it will start with searching yourself, in which we examine the deepest motives and the brokenness of our own hearts. Facing your own brokenness, facing your own depravity, facing your your own prone to failure first. And so how do we help other people? Well, we begin by asking God the question, do I have any planks? Or maybe more closer to the truth, what planks do I have in my eye that I need you to help me with, that I need you to deal with, that I need to get rid of? What planks do I have? And then we surrender them, and we bring them to God, and we ask him for his help, and we ask him to lead us, and we ask him for his grace, we ask him for his mercy. We ask the Spirit to lead us in laying these things down. And when we search our hearts, and when we let God search our hearts, when somebody has done that, truly done that, in the honesty of laying your soul bare before God, well then that's somebody who in turn, I think, can go out and help other people. That's somebody who can go out and help other people with things that they struggle with. Someone who's also faced the very real struggles that they themselves have. And so live out of that place that you are just as much in need of God, in need of his help as they are. You know, I think of close friends in my life. I've been blessed with close friends who have been able just to show me things about myself that I needed to see. Anyone have those relationships, Right? And often this kind of helping people will need to come out of that relationship. I don't suggest you start walking up to random strangers and pointing out their flaws if you don't expect to get a mouthful of interesting words coming your way, right? Don't do it. But in relationships sometimes, I've had close friends that have been there to help me and to show me things. You know, my wife has pointed out things in very loving ways that I need to look at, you know, and, and you know, sometimes in those relationships with your spouse, you need to be careful, right? Because how many, I know we all just fill up with joy when our spouse calls us out on something, right? And it just starts off a great evening, right? Dinner's going to be awesome, right? I'm stoked, Right? So you need to be careful that when when you do these things, that it happens out of love and it happens out of a sincere place. Um, My friend Joe, a good friend of mine throughout college, you know, he's pointed out things in my life that, you know, at first they stung a little bit, but later on they helped me become the person that I wanted to be. And so in relationship, at times we can help each other. We can actually help one another. And often this comes out of relationship, but it always, and let me stress this, it always comes out of a place of self- selflessness and love. Always. And so finally, let, let me bring about the point that we were going to look at today with the kingdom ethic. This morning, I want to just finish by talking quickly about the kingdom ethic of mercy. It's the way kingdom people live. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. And as we seek to live in his kingdom, as we seek his kingdom, we, there's a certain ethic that surrounds these type of people and mercy is one of them. Mercy is one of those ethics in James chapter 2 and verses 12 to 13. It says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And I love this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How many of you know in your own life that mercy has triumphed over judgment for you, right? For what Jesus has done on the cross for you. And mercy is an ethic of kingdom-minded people you know, we pray words like, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when, when we're doing that, one way in which we can be a part of his work here on earth as it is in heaven is by being people of mercy. People who dispense the same mercy that he's dispensed to you, that he's given to you. People who have been touched by mercy and then in turn give it away freely to other people. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, we read the words, and what does the Lord require of you? It says to, to, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And I just love that, that middle line, love mercy, to, to love it. And we love it because we've experienced it in our own lives and it's changed us, it's transformed us, it's brought us to a new place. And so mercy isn't just something that we're just kind of like, meh, eh, you know, it's kind of cool, right? No, we love it. You love mercy because you've experienced what that love did in your life. And what it can do in the life of other people. In Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so just as others sin and fall short, so do we. And the scriptures are clear that we are in need of mercy just as much as anyone else. And when we taste and truly receive that mercy from on high, when we truly receive and taste that mercy that God has to give us, it then becomes easier to give it away to other people. Did Jesus say, he who's been forgiven much loves much, Right? quick illustration years back there was a story in the media of a prominent pastor who fell morally and he was engaged in an affair and that was part of the story he was engaged in drug use with certain types of drugs and he was engaged in an affair but I think one of the biggest things that that shook a lot of people was that he was engaged in an affair with someone of the same gender right and it was all over headlines, it was all over the news, and in a lot of ways it was really interesting to see this play out. I was with a speaker from America that week who was speaking at a convention that I was at, and I was hosting him. And when he saw the headline in the lobby at his hotel, he, just, he, he literally just yelled out, no, no, like really loud. I was like, what, what is, what's happening here, right? And he knew the gentleman, and it just broke him, and it hurt his heart. And I think what, what was the toughest thing about this, the story that came out, was that so many people during that time were quickly trying to disassociate themselves from that person. They just wanted him to go away and hide and not be in the public eye anymore. They were trying to, you know, get away from that guy, get away from that situation. And it made headlines. It was all over the news. And, and, you know, it was all the way out there. But Michael shesire in one of his books, he tells his story about encountering this former pastor after the news had broke. And he talks about encountering him and being able to hear from his heart some of the hurt that happened through it all. It, it, especially losing friends, especially having people write him off, especially having people within the, within the church wanting nothing to do with him. And Michael Shazire, in one of his books, talks about his discussion that he had during this time with another fellow colleague. And he says this, he says, one close friend said he would understand it more if this pastor had just sinned with a woman. I agreed with him at the time. It's amazing how much more mercy I give to people who struggle with things that I understand. But the further their struggle is, from my own personal struggles, the more judgment and the more callous I've become. I'm not proud of that. That's just where I was at that time in my walk, he writes. And it got me thinking. It got me thinking about something I've heard a lot of pastors say over the years, right? I've heard it said that we get upset when people sin differently than we do. It bugs us. It enrages us. Something within us gets angry about it. And, you know, is this perhaps true of us as well? Is there a certain line that we can tolerate with people making mistakes or doing things that, you know, are are, are sinful or immoral? Is there a certain line that we can tolerate? But once it's crossed, we lose this ability to understand them or to even show empathy to them. It throws us off. It's tough to relate. It's tough to comprehend. We don't really understand. And so we we react very negatively. Think about that in your life. Throwing the question out there. It reminds me of the words that Tony Campolo started saying in his sermons um, a few years ago. Taking an old saying of the church that used to say, you've heard it said, love the sinner and hate the sin. And Tony, during one of his talks, said, may I suggest an amendment to that? It's true, love the sinner, hate the sin, but may I suggest an amendment? How about this, love the sinner and make sure to hate your own sin." And as kingdom minded people, we all have struggles. We all have sin, and we all need mercy. And thanks be to God, we all have the freedom to accept and receive mercy. Amen? The antidote to condemning or judging in this matter is to show mercy. The kingdom ethic is to. Sh- It's to show mercy. It's to love mercy. It's to give to others what you'd have them give to you. Kingdom people are all about creating this culture of mercy that people can come and not feel ashamed and not be disassociated with and not be turned away, but creating a culture where mercy flows freely. I started this talk by referencing John chapter 8, that story where they dragged the woman in who was caught in adultery. And... You know, the idea of these men caught with stones in their hands. And one of the things in that story that I always think about that I wish I could watch this on video someday is what did Jesus write on the ground that morning? Anyone ever thought that before? And I'm going to purely speculate here this morning, okay? So this is not scripture. This is not truth. Please don't listen 100% to what I say here. But what if maybe what Jesus wrote on the ground that morning was do not judge? not saying he did. Maybe he did, though. You know, maybe... He might have wrote something like "Grace and mercy works wonders." That's what he was about. I'm not saying he wrote that, but it's what he was about. And so, where are you at this morning? Let me ask a couple questions, and I'll get the band to come up here, and they'll play us out. But is there any way that perhaps you've caught yourself judging others? perhaps making judgments about people, perhaps associating their identity with actions that they've done. You see, Jesus kind of tells us when you're this kind of person, you set yourself up and it's not going to work out good for you. Perhaps you need to bring that tension to the cross today. Because the cross is where we find healing, it's where we repent, it's where we have confession, it's where we find ourselves in agreement with God, we pray for others, we pray for ourselves, we entrust ourselves to him, we entrust others to him, and we need each other in the church. And so maybe the Spirit has spoken to you through conviction, not condemnation. There's a big difference. Condemnation is not what God does, but conviction, healthy conviction, is something the Spirit gives us to show us our wrongs. And so maybe we need to offer mercy to someone today. I don't know. I don't know your story. Maybe you've recognized that trying to control people hasn't worked and you've experienced frustration. You've you've experienced what it feels like to be miserable. And maybe you need to take that to God today in prayer. Maybe there's someone in your path who you, you, you cross paths with all the time. And, you know, some of your interactions with them have been less than merciful. And maybe you need to ask Jesus to help you show them the same mercy that he's shown you. And maybe you've not received the free gift of grace and mercy of Christ in your life. And this morning, you've heard about a God who loves and accepts you. And you want to make a decision to start living with them. Maybe that's you this morning. And I ask us all to stand? Wherever you're at this morning, I want to pray with you right now. And I want to pray that God would continue to use us to be people of mercy, living out the ethics of the kingdom, a kingdom that we're proud to be a part of. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning that you love each and every one of us so much with such unending, unconditional love that you've lavished on us, that we should be called your children. I pray that you would just walk with each one of us, wherever we're at in this, God. Maybe you're speaking to our hearts. Maybe there's people that we've maybe treated unfairly. Maybe there's those in our path who need a touch of mercy. Maybe you're putting people on our hearts right now, people who, you know, if they received mercy, what a difference it would make in their life. The Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us to do what we in ourselves can't do. Father, as we leave here today, help us to search ourselves. Help us to search our own hearts and help us to love mercy. Help us to create a culture of mercy coming out of soul and into different places in this city. We need your help need your strength. I just pray that your hand would be upon each one here today. And that as we leave today that we would go empowered in your love to make a difference in the places that you place us. Thank you for your mercy this morning and help us to show it freely in Jesus name. Amen. If this is your first time at Soul, I want to welcome you. If you maybe you made some new decisions in your life today, I'd love to speak with you. I'll be at the welcome center. I'd love to talk with you there after the gathering but I'll leave us with a blessing and so in ancient times the one who blessed extended hands and those who received the blessing did likewise if you'd like to receive a blessing this morning please extend your hands as you leave and go may you recognize the love that the Father himself has lavished on you that you are called a child of God may the mercy that you've received from him be something that you show and give to those around you May you be strengthened in his love to love all of those whom you encounter. And may we walk in humility, loving mercy, mercy, doing justly, according to his grace that is at work within us. And we ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Good to see you this morning. We'll see you next week. Soul Golf Tournament, June 26th. Meet us in the back. And uh, go out in mercy today that you've received from him. God bless.